Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Today's episode is presented by Lloyd's Banking Group. Everyone deserves a safe place to call home. That's why Lloyd's Banking Group has championed the social housing sector for decades supporting more than 340 housing associations across the UK. Hey everyone, welcome back to EU Confidential. I'm your host, Ryan Heath, the political editor at Politico Europe, and you're listening to the number one EU politics podcast. As the world's elite warms up for the World Economic Forum in Davos next week, the political climate is decidedly chilly. There's the general background, that three of the five biggest democracies in the world, India, the United States and Brazil, are now led by right-wing populists. There's also the specifics, though. Theresa May's spectacular Brexit deal defeat, for example, which was mostly the result of her refusal to talk to anyone outside her own party for the entire length of the negotiations. And who could forget Donald Trump's month-long government shutdown? And finally, Emmanuel Macron is discovering the power of listening, after learning the hard way that French people don't like palace-issued tax hikes on basic items. (sighs) I mean, really, that was like French Revolution 101 in high school. So today we're offering you an antidote to 2019's social media-driven whirlwind. We're talking to Felix Kloss, author of the book Churchill on Europe. He's 26, Dutch, and also running to become a member of the European Parliament. And what's great about our chat is that he puts Brexit and leadership issues into a long-term perspective, while connecting them back to the here and now of the baby steps of his own political career. In the podcast panel, we dissect a set of data points about how divided and rudderless Europe is heading into the 2019 European Parliament election, before discussing the power of politicians actually listening to voters. How about that? But first, we hear from Felix Kloss. So, Felix, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Now, you have published a book about Winston Churchill. Mm -hmm. Now, many people have gone down that road before, Mm -hmm. including Boris Johnson, once the Prince of Darkness here in the Brussels Press Corps. Tell us a little bit about what's different about your book, because you were really looking at the European angles of Winston Churchill. That's right. I think that's the most important thing, right? His book is a one-volume biography. It's something that many people have tried to give an account of Churchill's life from beginning to end. And obviously, he focused on the points where he felt like Churchill was most useful to his own political purposes, also in the case of Europe. So he wrote one chapter about Churchill's engagement with the idea of unifying Europe after the Second World War and also before, uh, but only mentioned the parts where it seemed like Churchill had no idea or sense of bringing Britain into the project. Ah, so in a sense, your book is a response to what Boris Johnson was doing. In a sense, it is. Right. And in a sense, it was a response to the times. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's something I fell into during my studies, reading about the sort of first steps towards unification of Europe after the Second World War. I figured out Churchill was this prominent figure in the movement to unite Europe. And this was written about in articles and sort of perfunctory 
paragraphs in one volume biographies like Boris's, mm-hmm. but never had there been a book that explored the topic on its own, which was strange to me because we speak of the fathers of Europe like Jean Monnet or Robert Schumann or, you know, all the people that have their names on the buildings here in Brussels. But it's actually Winston Churchill who I think was the great-grandfather of the idea of unifying Well, then you've gone right into it. Where would you rank them if you had to put them (laughs) in an order? Because people here really focus on Monet, who is French, Schumann as well. Mm -hmm. And they they kind of mention Winston Churchill. Yes. But he's a bit of an ugly duckling. Because I suppose there is this school of thought that says he was very happy for there to be a United States of Europe. Yeah. He just didn't want Britain to be a part of it. So I, dis- I, dis- I disagree with that yeah. in a sense, but to respond to, to the first part of your question is, yes, he is an, an sort of ugly duckling. I was just in the subway in Brussels and his name is uh, sort of on the subway rather than on the main buildings of the political scene here. If I would rank them, Churchill would come first and mm-hmm. then probably Robert Schumann and then Jean Monnet and all the big guys, De Gasperi from mm-hmm. Italy, Konrad Adenauer, obviously. Those, I think those were the big guys. of yeah. Because uh, of Churchill's pedigree generally in politics or because of the the way he went about arguing for the cause? So this is also in response to the question of did Churchill want Britain in or out? I think the question is not that important because what strikes me is that Churchill was the first standard bearer of the idea. He was the protagonist in the movement. And without him, we would never have had anything like the European coal and steel community. We would never have had any plans for a European defense mm-hmm. community, which failed in the 1950s. And we would never have had the European economic community, mm-hmm. which later came about and then turned into the European Union. So he would always used to say, I'm growing a seed. Yep. There are these embers that should turn into a big fire, which we'll call European unity. I'm paraphrasing, obviously, he wouldn't yep. say it that way. But that is what was necessary. And so he riled up thousands of people on the streets of London, demonstrating as they are now, mm-hmm. for European unity. He routed up thousands of people in the Netherlands, in The Hague, where he came to speak, in Amsterdam, in Zurich, in Strasbourg, where he would speak in French, uh, very ugly French, mm-hmm. by the way, better than mine still. But the idea was you needed someone with that kind of notoriety almost. And he was seen as the liberator, the savior of Western civilization. And he came to the European continent with one message, and it was Europe unite. Mm-hmm. And I think all of what we have now, all of the good that's been thrown into my lap. I'm 26 years old. I was Mm -hmm. born in the year the European Union was founded, is thanks to his starting campaign in 1946. Now, let's dial it back to 1940. Yes. Because one of my favorite episodes in history that almost no one knows about, including my ex, who was French, had no idea. Oh, no. I just threw it out there, (laughs) is the way Churchill was willing to engineer a merger between the UK and France as a, a method for staving off the Nazis who That's were right. looking to invade. Yeah. Did you come across that in his papers? Was that yeah. sort of part of his growth towards this European ideal? Certainly it was part of it. I don't think it was the blueprint for what he would later do, but the Franco-British superstate, as he called it, was definitely a pet project of his in 1940. And it stuns people still. Because he was ready and he wrote a memo or he helped craft... He was literally ready to get on the train to Paris to merge the two countries. To merge the two. Their parliamentary sovereignty, their armed forces, their currency unity. And the interesting question is, if it had happened, what would have happened after the war? Because once you set up that kind of merger and after the war you start rebuilding together, then what reason would there be to break it up? Or, as we now learned, Brexit, from whatever it is you're a part of, is a difficult process once you have... Once you've got it going. So I think the interesting historical counterfactual is, if it had happened, 
would the European Union have started from that sort of Franco-British axis? I think it would have. He was definitely in favor of merging Britain and France at that point. He had to be persuaded by then a little-known figure, Jean Monnet, who was also in on the drafting of the Mm -hmm. memo. What I find interesting in reaching into Churchill's papers and reading about this is that he was genuinely involved with the idea. I mean, he was ready to do it. He was listening to his advisors. But the guy that actually persuaded him was a man called General de Gaulle, who was then there in London as a representative of the French government. And it was only for the defeatism of the French ministers at the time that it didn't come about. But de Gaulle wanted it too. So there's a really interesting pattern there of the politicians that are seen as almost nationalists, Churchill and de Gaulle, Mm -hmm. as working against the idea of a united Europe and more for a kind of idea of European cooperation, nation states working together rather than integrating, who are, I think, better seen as the sort of arch fathers of the idea of integrating countries rather than letting them cooperate. And the other thread that strikes me as running through all of that is a willingness to go for any radical solution that might actually work to solve the problem at stake. And what I notice a lot about politics today is people feel very hemmed in, either from their own limited abilities or what they perceive as the ideology of their party Mm. or the kind of constraints of public opinion, rather than really identifying what would solve a problem and then pursuing that outcome. And this is, if there's anything that we could pinpoint to as Churchill's legacy, it's this. It's being able to analyze the problem, then coming up with a solution that works and then having the courage to tell the people that you represent something they don't like to hear. And merging Britain and France is not something especially English people would have liked to hear at that point. Obviously, there was a lot more possible because of the heat of the war, but he did it after the war too. He wanted to win the peace, and so he went to the British people and said, I have one message for you. It is that we should merge our sovereignty, as he said in Parliament, with the rest of the European countries because we are a small Western democracy and we will make it with the help of our European brothers and only then. And if he was saying they were small then, when they still had an empire, when in relative terms they were still a much bigger footprint in the global economy, for example, then that puts current Britain in perspective. Yes, well, I mean, to be sure, he was an imperialist. He believed in British power and he thought that Britain should sort of stand at the intersection of all great power circles in the world. One was obviously Britain and America working together, the special relationship. The other one was Britain and the Commonwealth, and he really wanted to hold on to that. And then the third one was Britain and Europe in what he then called the European Union after 1945. And this would allow Britain to have more power than ever before. I mean, we should still see him as a sort of British power thinker, maybe. But what's interesting to me is that he saw Europe as an insurance policy because he knew Britain would be smaller and smaller and smaller. And as the years went on, losing India, losing Pakistan, losing more and more of the colonies that he took for granted in his youth, he's a kid of the 19th century, he saw that Europe was the only solution to maintaining that British power. And this is exactly what we see in the debate now, right? Yeah, I mean, and that brings us to the obvious question, is what Churchill would have done or what he would think about the current state mm-hmm. of debate. So there's like... Question A, would he believe in Brexit? And then B, I mean, this total mess we see now in the the British Parliament, which small chance some of that is resolved by the time people are hearing this podcast, Mm -hmm. much greater chance that it's the exact same mess we've been looking at for weeks now. Yeah. I think if you take that sort of perspective of Churchill as a British power thinker, as wanting to increase rather than diminish British power in the world and use it for good, 
Uh, he had high hope for what Britain could do to the rest of the world with this great tradition of sort of liberty and justice for all almost. He would have obviously wanted Britain to be a major global player, and that would include being a part of the European Union now. But that's a general principle. The boring answer, and I'll give it now because this is sort of what historians need to hear as well, is of course, we can't ask Churchill what he would think of Brexit now. He died in the 1960s. I mean, it's it's gone. It's a different era. We can't tax the great man. The oracle is dumb, as <laughs> Boris Johnson wrote, <laughs> and then quickly forgot. Um, my point is that no, we can't ask Churchill exactly what he would have thought now. But using general principles, I think we could say that Brexit is the worst thing that he could see happen to Britain in the 21st century. And actually, it's probably a relative, an intermediary judgment, which is that were he to be alive or in power, he probably would have slammed a bigger fist or a bigger handbag down on the table about elements of the EU he didn't like. Yes. So he wouldn't be in a position to having to reject it at some point, yes. like in a referendum. Yes. The, I mean, les absents ont toujours tort. Hein? That's what he would always say in French, in Parliament. <laughs> Those who are absent are always wrong. He would have wanted to be at the table making the decisions rather than walking away from the table and whining about the fact that you can't make decisions anymore, as some of the Brexiteers now do, whining about the fact that they won't have seats in the European Parliament after Brexit. Obviously, you won't be here. Well, speaking of the table and the European <laughs> Parliament, you've walked me right to my next question, which is that you are indeed a candidate for the European Parliament I am. elections in May. And that is for a party which we would describe in English as D66. Yes. And we would describe them as... I guess, left liberal, not left in the sense of socialist economic planning, hmm. but very socially progressive and very market-oriented. Yeah, probably that's right. A fair yeah. Description. Yeah. yeah. So tell us a bit about why you decided to leap in there. And you're following in the footsteps of people like Sophie Entveldt and hmm. Maurice Scharker, yeah. very prominent Dutch MEPs from yeah. that party. So give us the lowdown about why you are at 26 trying to come into this institution. Well, I'm, I'm excited you asked the question this way because it's the history that really brought me onto this path that led me into your studio. By you studio, we mean glass aquarium with some <laughs> fake theater curtains to absorb the sound folks. Uh, We're Felix, sitting <laughs> Felix is already a politician. He's flattering his audience, but go on, Felix. I'm very sorry. Um, I mean, being a European and having these liberal democratic yeah. principles and being also pragmatic because mm -hmm. our party is, is not what sets me apart from any other political candidate that, you know, would come from the D66 sort of background. What sets me apart is that I've been able to study the history of the European project. I've had the privilege and the opportunity to study it in university and then to write a book about it, to travel the world as a historian and talk about this subject, which is very important to me. And this is also what inspired me to talk about it, because I think we take it for granted. People like Churchill and the people around him had the courage to build something from scratch. And we've been given it, and we're now in the most wealthy, the most safe and best environment that I could have grown up in anywhere in the world. If I had to pick any place or time to be born in, it would be now. It's thanks to the people that started this project. So and it's do you feel like somehow now, collectively, that legacy is being thrown away? Like, what would you do? In Britain, certainly it is. We see it within the European Union as well. I mean, with Orban and Kaczynski, things are being thrown out that we would have taken for granted maybe 10 years ago, maybe not 70 years ago. Although Churchill would have wanted the eastern states to join the European Union much earlier than they actually did. 
we see it from outside the European Union. I mean, the special relationship is obviously at strains, and that's something that Churchill would have hated to see. We see Erdogan in Turkey, we see North Africa as a sort of problematic area for Europe as well, and we see Putin coming from the East. Mm -hmm. So in all of that darkness, when all of our friends have leaped into darkness, Europe is, I think, a beacon of light in the world. And we need to be proud of it, talk about it, and persuade ourselves that we can do more and we can do better. And is it the talking about it that is going to move people from a kind of criticism or skepticism posture? Mm. Because I, I guess the point I would make is that there's probably a majority who think the EU needs to exist. Yeah. But there's an increasingly organized and vocal minority goes beyond Heath Wilders and other people. You know, it's you've got populists and Eurosceptics in major governments yeah. around Europe now. So what is it that you could do as an MEP? Like, if you were elected, mm -hmm. what would you do to try and avoid that outcome in the Netherlands? I'll take a, a sort of weird example. Nigel Farage from the UKIP party, who went to the European Parliament and used his platform to talk about what he thought Europe should be. And he thought it should be a collection of nation states and that his own country, Britain, should leave it. That it should be broken up entirely. It's a sort of 19th century idea of nationalism that I think it's good that we've left in the past, but it's resurfacing. And what I would do as an MEP is use that platform in the exact opposite direction, is talk to my national constituency about what happens here. So of you'd course. be a communicator. You'd, you'd focus on the communications rather than the five pieces of legislation that you could put your yes, name on. Yes, and I want to work as hard as possible to bring about anything that I could do here, focusing on climate, on, on inequality, and also on democratization of the European Union. Uh, I want to work hard here behind the scenes. But what's more important, I think, right now, at this moment in time, when, as you're right to say, Eurosceptics are joining governments, when nationalism is resurfacing, when whole countries are choosing autocracy over liberty, I think we have to be on the side of liberty and democracy without any reservation. And also talk about it in a way that tells a story. Because if we're going to tell people, this is what we're doing for you at home. We, your mobile phone is now cheaper to use because of the European Union. That's okay, but people know that. The nationalists are not against that. What I think is necessary is a story about who we are and where we want to go. And that's a story that I think I can tell from that historical perspective, because it's sort of seeped into my bloodstream now. What I want to do, use that platform, is talk about the European ideal. And it's the opposite of the nationalism that Churchill abhorred. And how does that work in practice in mm. the Netherlands? And I'm just thinking now that a lot of people listening probably have the right to vote in the European elections. Many of them either were too young or have never exercised that right to vote. And there yeah. are different, 27 different systems will be working at the end of May. So is it the case that you have to go out and arrange a personal vote? That you're kind of going to be on the list of your party, yeah. but now it's about how you can mobilize people in the Netherlands exactly. and that determines who gets elected. And especially young people, because in the Netherlands, 37% of people vote at the European election the last time, which is very low, of course, because we have 82% of national elections turning out. It's actually, well, the, the people who didn't vote are larger than the three biggest parties combined. Oh. Maybe even the four biggest parties in the Netherlands wow. combined. Yeah, well, there you go. But then in the European elections, it gets even worse with people my age. So in my age group, only 18% of people vote. 18%. That's 80% of votes thrown away. So what I want to do is talk to young people, talk to them about what happened to British young people when they didn't show up to vote, and talk to them about what Europe is. 
And it's a story that doesn't get told in our high schools. It's a story that doesn't get told in our universities even. What is the European coal and steel community? It sounds like a technocratic experiment, and it was. But the ideals behind it were majestic, and they're worth talking about. I think young people are in a mood to be entertained, if you will. They're in a mood to be inspired. I don't know if I can do it, but I want to try. Well, you've got the platforms now. I yeah. mean, I'm not trying to say that you would be Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, but what's very striking about a candidate like her is, uh, yes, youth is a factor, but it's more her fluency in how to use the internet and mm-hmm. digital platforms. Yep. It's just hardwired into people your age. Yeah. And she, in three weeks of being in Washington, D.C., can battle it out with Trump day for day right. in this kind of discussion in a way that, you know, whatever the, the qualities of a Nancy Pelosi or a Chuck Schumer are, yeah. you know, how is it that in three weeks she gets more attention than they do? Than all of them combined, yeah. I mean, it's it's political savvy, of course, but it's also digital savvy. Uh, and it's also about the story she tells. I mean, she can, she can dance, obviously, and we'll all see it, and it was amazing. But she can also tell a story about what she believes, and that's far more important. And I think... One of the things that we haven't done enough in European politics, but also in national politics, is we haven't given people a story to believe in. We've told them the European Union is good because uh, you get a little bit more money. It's fine because you can travel across borders easily. And this is what David Cameron did in the referendum. And of course, the result was... I've got a feeling he keeps traveling across borders pretty easily. (laughs) (laughs) That's part of the problem. Because he's rich enough. And the people that are duped with the problem won't be able to. And that's exactly what we need to avoid in other countries and what I hope the Netherlands will avoid. Felix Kloss, thank you so much for joining us on EU Confidential. Thank you so much for having me. That was historian and political candidate Felix Kloss. Next up, the podcast panel. Now it is time to welcome back the podcast panel. Good morning, Alva Finn. Good morning. And good morning, Lena Abarus. Good morning, Ryan. Good morning, Alva. So we're sitting here with a bunch of beautiful graphs and charts and data in front of us here in my office. And what it was telling us about was how the 2019 European election really is probably going to amplify a set of divisions that we have a, a sense of in Europe. But the data we've got in front of us is really telling us in a lot of detail about these divisions. And it struck me as we go in to talk about this data that we're also faced by a set of leaders who are only just realizing now that maybe they should be doing a little bit more listening to their populations. You've got Theresa May, who's now suddenly about to conduct talks with other parties and other national governments around Brexit. You've got Emmanuel Macron standing up for six hours at a time, listening to the people who probably could have told him fairly quickly a few months back that a fuel tax rise was not a good idea. You have others like Manfred Weber, who are going to go from country to country listening before they begin a real campaign to become European Commission president. And then, of course, you've got Donald Trump not really listening to anyone Before we go into these specific data points, what's your thought about how politicians should listen, react, lead today in Europe? Any politician should be listening. It's the basics. And in Arabic, we say you have two ears and one mouth because you need to listen more than you talk. But now I believe that they want to listen in order just to talk what they already want to say. It's just like... um, a package, you know, making it look nicer, making it look more attractive. Mm. That is the amazing thing of Brexit. It's not like there weren't six or seven different options the UK could have taken. 
And it's not as though several of those options were impossible to get a majority for in Parliament. Mm. It's just that Theresa May didn't actually talk to anyone outside her own party in developing her plan. And she talked to the most radical among them. Her whole strategy and red lines was on the basis of what Brexiteers, hardline Brexiteers in the Tory party want, therefore not pleasing the majority of her party at all. Not listening to Labour, not listening to her partners in the DUP who are propping her government up. I mean, to me, she needs to stand down because she's done an awful job. Then she started listening to the European Union, all of a sudden doing these kind of emergency talks all around the member states, only then realising that the red lines are the same red lines that David Cameron came up against. Actually, she's the opposite of Michelle Barnier in a way, because... They went around and did their tour before the negotiations began. I know I've said that before, but I haven't quite made it click in my own mind in that way. And it's it's not really coming to bite it. So we're sitting here with a bunch of beautiful graphs and charts, and these poor listeners have no idea what we've been looking at. So the first one really shows that the European People's Party and the Socialists, the two biggest parties in the European Parliament, for the first time, they're absolutely going to have less than 50% of the votes. Next data point is that if you count up all of the Eurosceptics, so the ones that, you know, might say they're not anti-EU, but actually bash the EU the whole time, people like Fidesz, Five Stars Movement, Law and Justice in Poland, if you combine them with the really hardcore Eurosceptics, they're on track for 250 seats out of 705 in the next European Parliament. Another data point, non-voters are the biggest block in every single country except Belgium and Luxembourg, which have compulsory voting, and Malta. All the rest, abstentions, are the biggest uh, group in society. Europe's biggest party, it only leads one of the 13 most populous countries in Europe. And then when you look through what people care about, massive disparities in what the issues are from country to country. And then in terms of who citizens trust, in the north and the west of Europe, they trust their own governments more than the EU. And in the south and the east, it's almost like a clear line right down the diagonal line through the continent. In the south and east, they trust the EU more than their own countries. But like stark divisions, every data point you look at. Yeah, it's true. And I think it links to what we're talking about when we're talking about listening. Are these kind of facts and data going to be taken into account in the European elections? I think the thing that shocks me the most and probably is very frustrating for me as someone who has to work with the EPP all the time is they really have huge power in the European Parliament. If they basically don't want something, it doesn't happen. And then if you look at the fact that it just does, it's not representing actual governments, That, to me, just shows that Germany, and it's really because of all the German MEPs who are with the EPP, they just have really an oversized influence in Europe. And it's unfair. And you can see why, you know, the Italians and the Greeks get annoyed by this, because Europe isn't really equal in how we power broker decisions, how decision making is led. That's very, very stark to me. Again, it's about listening. And it's about the division as well, not among the member states only, but I always feel that there is a division between uh, Brussels and the member states. Like if you read any Italian newspaper or you read uh, the Spanish newspapers, it's as if 
us and them. So Brussels is the bad boy. Brussels is not doing enough. So of course, they are not believing neither in participating in their own uh, national elections, because at the end of the day, they didn't, couldn't care less anymore to uh, satisfy Brussels or Brussels has to agree uh, for their budgets or Brussels has to agree on uh, give them a percentage on migration. So there has been a number of factors, especially the migration issue has been really used to dispower the traditional political parties like the APP and the SND. Uh, and the, the others took over. And but what could you do aside from either dialing back EU powers or another thing that I always come back to that will probably never happen is that I think there should be a much greater turnover of people in Brussels. You get people who think they're coming here for one or two years and they end up staying here for 20 years because it's a very lucrative environment to be mm -hmm. operating in, especially if you're an EU official. And I just feel that the original point of the system was national public servants came here for three or five years, something like that, and then they brought their knowledge and experience back to their national capital and it should sort of go on regenerating like that. And instead, you have people who end up living in a bubble here in Brussels, but then you also have people who just can't be bothered to learn, who can't be bothered to be open-minded in national capitals. So I'm not, I'm not blaming Brussels versus the national capitals, but I think that people here are in a very privileged position, and if they just gave up some of it, maybe there would be a better flow of information and exchange of ideas. And they fight among them to have more even seconded people to Brussels at the member states. Not, uh, not the UK. <laughs> Another thing that's really interesting to me is the different topics that different European countries find important. Mm -hmm. If you look at the map, basically Portugal, Spain, France, Italy, and some of the Eastern countries, they care about pollution. And then migration management is the key concern of a lot of countries that don't have any problem with migration. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really interesting. So, you know, the frontier countries, their biggest problem is pollution. And for those that don't have many migrants, you know, I think it just goes to show that media has inflated the migration issue so much so that it's created fear in places where they really don't need to fear migration. Again, it goes to this idea that the European Union needs to speak to all of these factors. But when we set priorities, sometimes we forget what the Eastern Bloc thinks. The EU has not taken people along with it to the extent that people imagine here in Brussels. Things that are taken for granted in Brussels are not the common wisdom in a lot of different parts of Europe. And, and that is not enough taken account of. Like it finds voice in Euroscepticism and when different EU initiatives are rejected by referendum. So it's not as if there aren't warning signals, mm -hmm. but it is as though warning signals have to come on a really regular basis for anyone in Brussels to get the message. And even then they forget it pretty quickly. Let's talk about one of the difficulties the EU has in getting decisions out of its system. And that is that in a lot of areas, it has to be consensus. Mm -hmm. So in some areas, the EU operates by something called qualified majorities, so a super majority in effect, not just 50 plus one, but usually 65 plus one basically is what we're talking about. But that doesn't apply to issues like taxation, to a lot of social policy, to some environmental policy, for example. And the European Commission's think tank put out a report this week essentially saying that we should extend mm. it into a lot of these different areas. And I think that is treated as common sense by a lot of people in Brussels, but it's vehemently rejected by most national governments. So I think that probably that's a report that won't go anywhere in the short term, mm. but it's 
kind of got a fundamental kernel of truth into it that the EU has to consider some more of these options. What do you think the lie of the land is there? Are national governments ever going to put themselves second and see that maybe they would deliver more together if they gave up a little bit of their veto power? There was very little coordination around common foreign policy. Now we have a high representative and increasingly the bloc has understood that particularly at international level we are a force to be reckoned with if we all work together via consensus. Now having worked in some of these difficult meetings going to EU coordination I definitely see that there are some times when the EU doesn't act or do what it says particularly in relation to human rights because some member states block things. So I do think that if we really wanted to be seen as consistent and coordinated on some of the more difficult aspects of foreign policy, then having this new way of working where one member state cannot block a foreign policy position, that would be very beneficial. But again, I think we're a long way away from getting there. And the ones who are blocking need to see via some example that we're stronger together and we're more consistent when we speak with one voice. I would say that's a strong argument. But then thinking back to what we had said about uh, Germany having too much influence, isn't the veto one of the few ways a little country has to stop someone like Germany railroading them? I think the reason is about the fact that smaller countries are now using their veto power disproportionately. So we see Hungary doing it, we see Poland doing it. Some of the smaller countries that are more progressive they only used it if they absolutely had to and otherwise they just kind of go with consensus. So I know, for example, Ireland do that on a number of different issues. Yeah, so I think the reason why this has been brought in is because the veto power is being used when it shouldn't to leverage more national interest. That's all we've got time for on this episode of EU Confidential. Thank you so much, Lena. Thank you, Alba. pleasure. And as always, podcasting is a team effort. So I need to give a big thank you to Weidong Lin and Andrew Gray. And if you haven't already signed up to our community, please do at politico.eu forward slash registration or whatever platform you found us on. And next week, we're going to have one episode each day live from Davos. We're going to live tape one episode on Tuesday night coming to you on Wednesday morning. And on all the other days, probably around about midday, you'll get a new podcast episode. We'll keep them nice and short. You don't have to listen to us for 30 or 40 minutes. We'll keep them something like 20 minutes, but hopefully that will keep you going through the dark depths of this European winter. As a major research institution, Arizona State University offers the most online bachelor's degree programs, along with world-class faculty and dedicated support. Discover why ASU is ranked number one in innovation for nine consecutive years. Tap to learn more.